Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Those of you who follow pro-life news will know that abortion, of course, has been in the news nonstop for months, not only because Roe v. Wade was overturned back in June, but because the lead-up to that overturning prompted a almost nonstop torrent of stories in the mainstream media, where essentially what you have is pro-choice activists in the media attempting to persuade the public that abortion is fundamentally necessary, ignoring the fact that the vast majority of abortions are for social reasons, and instead focusing on a handful of the hard cases. Now, you see this unfolding in the abortion referendums underway in Michigan and Kentucky. By the time this show airs, we will know how those referendums have turned out. But we also have this showing up in the editorial pages and the news pages of almost every major magazine and newspaper. And these, a lot of these stories are really horrifying. These are stories of babies who are sick, babies who have conditions that will ultimately result in their death. And what you have is these bloodthirsty journalists stating that abortion needs to be legal so that babies who will have short lifespans can have those lifespans shortened even further by abortionists. And over and over and over again, we see the same script being used in the U.S., in Latin America, in South America, in Ireland during the 2018 abortion referendum. And because this is discussed so often, I wanted to have a conversation with somebody who works in this field, somebody who knows what it's like to love one of these children herself, and somebody who feels that her child's life has enormous significance and has led her to speak for these mothers, fathers, and their children. Her name is Vicki Wall. I've known her for a couple of years now. Those of you who have read my book, Patriots, The Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement, will have read her story in that book. I also got to meet up with her again recently on the renewal tour in Ireland. She spoke at one of the same stops I did, and it was lovely to meet her again. And now she joins me on the podcast to have what I think is an incredibly important conversation, not just if you're interested in the Irish pro-life movement, but no matter where you live, because this particular conversation is being had in the press, it's being had in homes, it's being had in legislatures, and I think that Vicky's perspective is a desperately needed one. Here's our conversation. All right, Vicky, just to start off, maybe introduce our listeners to your story and what your path into the pro-life movement was, because it's quite a story. I remember the first time I heard you tell it. Oh, so... I'd never been involved in campaigning for anything or I knew I didn't like abortion or wouldn't have agreed with it, but I never would have thought of saying anything about it or speaking out against it. And I always have this distinct memory of saying to myself, I'm really glad we don't have abortion here in Ireland, you know, and that was kind of as much as I thought about it. And then in 2014, at age 37, I found myself very, very unexpectedly pregnant. I didn't think that I was even able to have more children. And along came this little baby. <laughs> it was a huge shock. My other two children, Ty was 12 and Shannon was 14. And they didn't want a baby in the house. And we had, you know, what we thought the perfect little life set up. And so they weren't best pleased. But I think when I got over the surprise... I was like, okay, you know, yeah, we can do this. We'll be okay. I was called by the doctors, a geriatric mother. Apparently it's a medical term. <laughs> and <laughs> so I was like, yeah, you know, I feel it. But I remember thinking, you know, that I was, I'd had my other children younger and I was thinking I was going to do everything right this time. I was going to 
eat really healthily and take exercise and do all the the classes and all this kind of thing. And we started getting excited. Then we found out at her 24-week scan that she was very sick. We didn't know immediately how sick she was. And I was kind of naive to the whole situation of babies not surviving, babies being able to live while they're in the mother and then being born and, and not surviving. I was very, I'd never heard a story like that before. You know, I kept thinking that they didn't have it right. I'm like, you know, we're, we're 24 weeks now. Surely if something was going to happen, it would have happened in the first 12 weeks. She's obviously strong. And then they sent us for further testing in one of the main hospitals in Dublin. And it was very busy. And I remember this huge screen up on the wall and getting to see her. And she was always so active at the scans. I could feel her as well. But just seeing what I could feel, I was like, oh, you know, I felt that. And she was waving her hands around and everything. And the midwife was saying that the consultant was very busy and he mightn't be able to make it in, that there was a C-section happening. And but she would take lots of prints of the scan and they would get back to me. But he kind of rushed into the room last minute with his sleeves rolled up saying, oh, can I can I just take a look? Can I just take a look? And, you know, but I've, I've got to go quick. I've got to go to a C-section. I'm like, yeah, and, you know, of course, that's fine. And just within seconds, he said, oh, I'm sorry, love. It's twice me 18. And I never heard of this. I, I was like, what is that like? And he said, well, she's incompatible with life. And again, another phrase, terminology I'd never heard. I'm like, what do you mean somebody is incompatible with life? To me, that just didn't make sense. It was a horrible phrase that just didn't add up. She was going to be compatible with our life. So I didn't know what he meant. I mean, it was like something you'd hear someone in a dog pound say about a dog that didn't fit into their family. You know, she's not compatible with our life kind of things. And I looked at him, I said, what can we do? And I thought we could fix her or there'd be some surgery. And we've all seen these wonderful programs and documentaries about the surgeries and stuff they can do. And he said, your only option is you can pop to England, meaning travel to have an abortion. And I knew exactly what he meant. And I didn't even speak. You know, as I said, this this baby's on the screen. I can see what I can feel. She's kicking, waving. She's actually sucking her thumb, which they said that she couldn't do. And he's saying that she's just not compatible with life. So I think he knew by my face that I was horrified that, that he said that because immediately it felt like no longer was my little girl who we had already named Leaden. We had found out she was a girl, that no longer was she of any value to anybody, that there would be no fight for her or there would be no ambulance, or we'll try everything to save your baby, Mrs. Wall. There was nothing like that. And I just thought, how quickly you just wrote off my baby. And that was the, the entire feeling of that day. And I remember traveling home on the train because this hospital was four hours away from us and just crying and crying and not being able to stop it. Just tears falling and just being left off with this information. There was nothing else that I could do for her. And I remember feeling so scared and lonely and isolated. And of course, you know, they tell you not to, to Google, but I Googled. And there's all these terrible pictures of these children. And they were probably aborted babies that I happened to come across because they're on steel trays, they're on the blue paper, hospital paper. They're very unloved looking. It's very stark photos. So I remember the next couple of days were a complete blur. Lots of tears. Everybody around me telling me 
that no doctors get it wrong. She could be fine. And everybody knew somebody down the road, like this is Isla. So everybody knew somebody down the road that they would hold this news when they were pregnant. But Susie's baby was born fine and Johnny's baby was born fine, you know. And and I found myself almost kind of convincing other people. I'm like, no, 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 you know, this 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 is going to happen. And then we decided to get the amniocentesis because I really wanted to know for definite. And we got that and they came back very quickly and they said, yeah, you know, definitely try me 18. So I didn't like the hospital in Dublin and I decided to go back to my local hospital for care. They were just very kind there. And they were like, look, you know, if you ever want scans, come in and, and we'll do them for you. And they just got to know us. That was the one place that I felt Leiden was valued. Mm. You know, they would take us for our scan and we'd see on the picture and the lovely lady scanned us. Amy, I'll never forget her as long as I live. She'd write on the scan and have it printed then like, hi, nanny and granddad. We'd be able to give them them pictures. And then I wasn't getting to see a consultant. Care was very mixed. And again, I was kind of being pushed from pillar to post and they lost my notes and all these kind of things that do happen in hospitals. But I remember my own GP Again, another amazing guy in all this story. He rang the hospital and he said, you know, somebody's got to talk to Vicky. She doesn't know what's going on. You can't just tell her a baby's going to die. And, and I couldn't figure out, like, why is she going to die? I've seen that other children lived with this. So why was she specifically going to die straight away? So I did. I got to see this amazing consultant in the local hospital. He just sat me down. He said, look, Vicky, you know, she is very sick. When she's born, her brain won't tell her body what to do. We don't see these babies live, which I know now isn't the truth. It might have been his truth at the time. I know now different. And he said, look, you know, this is your time with her now. These are your memories. Enjoy them. Take pictures. Take her places. Talk to her. He said, are you still working? I said, I am. He said, right, I'm out of work. Forget about work now. He said, these are her first steps. Cherish them. It was just a green flag to love her mm. and to be with her because it's very scary. Yeah. It's very scary to love a baby that you know isn't going to live, that's going to be gone from you. So we did. We done that. I came out of work and we took pictures with her and we took her places and the kids played one direction for her. And it was very strange, actually, because my children, when they first found out about her, were not happy. <laughs> they did not want a sticky, crying baby touching their stuff. And as soon as they found out she was sick, as soon as they found out, they just loved her so much. They, you know, bought her gifts. I remember Tig, you know, making me drink milk, which I really didn't want to drink. And he's like, you know, it'll make her stronger. And they just instantly went into caring for her. They used to play One Direction through my belly to her. I'm sure she didn't like it, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they thought she did. Yeah, we just really made some good memories. We recorded her heartbeat and filmed her movements and all those kind of things. It was still almost really difficult to believe that she wasn't going to live because like that, we were getting scans and she was growing. She was small, but she was growing. And each week we'd make sure we had a little tiny outfit that if she did come early, that she'd have something to wear. And then her, her movements started slowing down at around 32 weeks. She wouldn't move as much. One day she had been especially quiet and my friend had called and I said, look, I'm really worried about her now. And she said, I'm after getting these cakes that I know you love. They were from Marks and Spencer's. And she said, I bet they'll get her moving. They did. And see, I found out afterwards, my consultant told me that babies can taste what we eat in the amniotic fluid. So I couldn't figure out how she always got really active after these blackberry 
Sundays from Marks and Spencers. But she obviously liked them. I kind of put it down to the sugar, but it was probably that and the flavour. And she did. You know, we, we had one of those with a cup of tea and I got this really big kick. This really big, you know, I'm here, ma'am. Don't worry. And I remember being on the couch and squeezing her in tight with my elbows and closing my eyes and just saying, baby, you know, hang in there for us. We'll mind you, you got this. And then just after that, I got a really bad pain. And it's a pain that you know if you've been pregnant. It's that pain that you think if you look down, you're going to see a leg or an arm, kind of a pain. And that was the last time I felt her move. She passed away. That was a Tuesday. And then she was born on that following Sunday, the 17th of August. Yeah. How much time did you have with her in total? So she passed away at 32 weeks and five days. And then when she was born, she was obviously still born. And we got to bring her home thanks to a wonderful invention called a cooling cot. It's a mat that goes under the baby in a Moses basket and, and keeps them cool so they don't have to go to the morgue. You can keep them with you. And we dressed her in her Peter Rabbit outfit that had been specially picked. And we got to bring her home and everybody came to see her. And one of the things that struck me is when Leodin was born, she measured the same as a 25-week-old baby, even though she was nearly 33 weeks. But that's what she measured. And she was just so complete. I don't know what I expected. And she was only two pounds. But my goodness, was she perfect so perfect and when she was born and she came out and I said that I wanted her straight to my chest but for some strange reason because I'm not a hero I didn't want any pain relief because I wanted to be very alert when she was born but she looked just like her sister she just had this grumpy face and I just couldn't believe how healthy she looked and how normal and how matured for such a small little baby she was She had loads of black hair, black curly hair, and she had lovely long eyelashes and her fingers and her fingernails. She had a little birthmark on her left butt cheek. We love that. We have a photograph of that. She was just so absolutely perfect. So we got to take her home and people to meet her and the priest came to the house and he blessed her and said some lovely prayers over her. And it was just so lovely because everybody wanted to meet her. Right. That was the thing. I think we were so open about our journey and how sick she was. And we didn't know, like some people don't handle it really well. Some people really don't handle it well. I remember telling a girl in work, you know, and I was consoling her for about half an hour. She couldn't stop crying. You know, I'm like, it's going to happen to me. It's not you. But some people, but we were so surprised. The house was packed for two days with people coming with gifts and with food and asking could they, you know, hold her little hand and... So it was a very special time. The time we got with her was, I wouldn't change it for the world, priceless. And those memories are everything. She's a huge part of our family. And she's remembered, I mean, she would have been eight years old this August. Mm. She's remembered by everybody. So every child changes everyone's life around them. But your little girl changed your life in a very specific way because you ended up going from the career path you were on to speaking for and defending children just like hers. Explain to us how that came about. After having Leoden, I never experienced grief before. And I did believe, I did think that I wouldn't miss this little person that I hadn't met before, that I had no memories with. 
I thought I'd feel okay. I knew I'd be sad, but I didn't think I would experience the grief that I felt. And it crippled me. I don't think I'd get off the couch for four weeks. I just couldn't. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't tolerate noise around me. And how physically painful grief is. Your heart is literally broken. And it's so painful. I just thought I couldn't function. I actually couldn't function. And again, that feeling of being scared and isolated and alone was horrible. And then what I found is one woman said to me, Vicky, it will be strangers to get you through this. And I didn't know what you meant at the time. And it was, I mean, it was all these people had reached out to me, people locally, that they had lost a child some many years before, some recently. And it was like, it was your tribe. You knew who you were talking to. They knew how you felt. You got to know their babies. They got to know yours. And I just thought, you know, there's got to be more supports there. And then that was, Liedem was born in August in 2014. And then around 2000, the end of 2015, I started noticing this kind of ramp up in stories about babies like Leiden in the media. Right. Yeah. And again, I didn't even know there was a whole pro-life campaign here in Ireland. I'd never heard of it or dealt with any or knew anything about it. And I thought, oh, you know, this isn't sitting right. This kind of talk, the way the media is talking about these babies. And, you know, it was all doom and gloom and there was no stories about women continuing with their pregnancies. And I'm like, and all these stories about women forced to travel and, bringing their babies back in the boot of their car. And I'm kind of like, hang on now a minute, where are the other stories? I actually went to a Remembrance Photography event and I met a lady there called Karen. She was actually working with Every Life Counts at the time. She heard my story at the event and she said, oh, you know, we'd, we'd love to share your story. And she said, would you write it and send it to me? And anybody that knows me now is laughing because I don't write. <laughs> you can't get me to shut up but I don't write <laughs> and I, I, I hate it. I, don't ask me to write anything. I barely write an address and I kept fobbing her off. You know, she was like, and then I thought, oh, I have to be honest with this girl. And she rang me again another day. She was like, over here, you, you know, would you like to share the story? And I said, look, I really, really would because Leiden's story is lovely, but I hate writing. So I said, how about I tell you <laughs> and you write it? <laughs> and she was delighted that she was absolutely fine. She was like, yeah, of course we'll schedule that. So I did. And then in 2016, she asked me to tell my story to a group of people who I didn't know at the time. But now I know that they were going to be canvassing to save the Eighth Amendment. I didn't even know what the Eighth Amendment was at the time. From doing that, then they were like, oh, this girl loves the microphone. (laughs) (laughs) We can use this. And that's when I started getting involved with Every Life Counts and through the campaign, then sharing my story, which was so important. It was so, it was so one-sided, the debate. It was so cruelly one-sided. And my whole fear at the back of it all was all the women that would have been currently going through that in the middle of this debate were seeing this. They were seeing these horrible words being said. Leo Vradka, you know, who's actually a doctor said in the doll that women were carrying dead babies in reference to children like Leiden. And I nearly got sick. I thought, what? How dare he? You know, the terminology. And then I was canvassing at the doors to save the Eighth Amendment. And people were saying things like this to me. Oh, you know, women are forced to carry dead babies because it almost became a tagline. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I can absolutely assure you they are not. 
And they were like, oh, you know, but you can't because it's the Eighth Amendment. So I said, no, I'm, I'm telling you now. And I said, look, I have the sources for you. Please verify them. There's my number. If I'm lying to you, please call me out. I'm telling you that is absolutely not true. So at the time, I got very angry that babies like Leiden were used for fodder, basically, to bring in abortion in Ireland. And I think they got it. That was one of the, the reasons that they got it through is that they were peddling this narrative of women carrying very sick children and being forced, you know, to have these children that were made non-human. They were fetuses, they were deformed, you know, all these awful terminology, incompatible, fatal fetal abnormality, which is just a disgusting term. We heard that all the time, yeah. Now, I want to back up a little bit, because one of the reasons I wanted to chat with you, because obviously I first heard your story when I was in Ireland for Save the Eighth, because you were working very hard with the Save the Eighth campaign. But one of the reasons I wanted to have this discussion with you and first hear your story and then talk about how your story applies more broadly in this moment is it wasn't just used in Ireland, but currently now when you look at a place like the U.S. where the fall of Roe v. Wade in June has basically meant that you have these referendums happening across the U.S. And, and to some extent, you have a, you know a couple of dozen states that are having the same debate you were having in Ireland in 2018. And right now in Michigan and Kentucky and previously in Tennessee, you see the same storylines being pushed, right? You see, well, what about women who are pregnant with children who won't survive birth? And you actually see them trying to use killing those babies as the reason that all abortion needs to be legal, because how could you possibly deny women the right to end the lives of those children? One of the very first cases they were focusing on in the U.S., I remember the headline, they said, woman in Louisiana forced to carry skullless fetus was the way they put it. I sent this to you on Facebook when I saw the clip cross my Twitter feed, right? But Anne Hathaway, the Oscar award-winning actress, went on to The View and basically said that abortion was an act of mercy. And she was referring to babies that would likely either not survive birth or would not live very long thereafter. And so I want to back up and take a look for a moment as what is Every Life Counts? Because the name of Every Life Counts is profoundly countercultural. In this moment, because even those who are pro-life in other circumstances seem to make exceptions for children like the children that Every Life Counts seeks to protect and defend. Yeah, we've seen that as well in Ireland. So Every Life Counts is an organization run by mothers that have all gone through this. Everybody that's involved has gone through this in some shape or form. It was set up in 2014 by mothers. I wasn't involved then by mothers that were being given the same feedback that I was, incompatible with life, travel. You know, this baby is never going to be any good. And at the time it was set up, it was more of a lobby group. And they did, they'd done amazing work. They got the term incompatible with life done away with. It's an awful term anyway. They went to the Geneva Convention for the Rights of Children with Disabilities so they've done huge work and it was mainly a campaign group then. Currently, what Every Life Counts does is if a mum gets a diagnosis, we're actually supported by the healthcare system here. And by supported, I mean endorsed. I beg your pardon, we're endorsed by the, the health system here. And midwives actually refer to us parents that have had a poor diagnosis of baby. We send them factual information, good leaflets, with good images on them of these babies wrapped in blankets being loved. We have all this proper, factual, truthful information for them. 
So that's what we do first. We stay in contact with them. We can do advocacy for them. We do care packages. We send out all items for memory making. And we also, I mean, we have children that survive as well. You know, we've had cases of misdiagnosis where the baby was perfectly healthy. We've had cases where the baby wasn't nearly as sick as it was. And we also work through those issues with mum as well because you know it's it's very traumatic to go through that stuff and then we stay as befrienders for them for at least a year afterwards through their grief through their upset through their 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 grief basically and we're on the HSE so that's the health service here in Ireland we're on their bereavement standards we're stakeholders basically in decisions that are made around the maternity hospitals so that's really impactful as well so we've really come a huge way. It's an amazing organisation, if I do say so myself. And we're incredibly busy. I mean, we really are getting to a point now that we're going to have to almost have waiting lists to help the mothers because that's how busy we have become. The more the midwives are hearing about us, the more mothers they're putting in touch with us. You know, they're asking us for our leaflets. They're asking us for our information packs. It's amazing. I mean, obviously, we're over the moon with that. But we have seen a huge increase in our workload since the repeal of the Eighth Amendment. But as you said there, in the US, you do have, we had it here, people that are pro-life. But when cases like this come up, they're, they're like, oh, well, you know, if the baby's not going to live anyway, or if the baby is very, oh, why would you do that to the mother? And we know, and we have medical evidence of this, it's on our website, it's a medical paper, that if good support is offered, that the abortion rate that is 90% in these cases, and with good perinatal hospice support offered, it reverses back to 85% of parents willing to keep their babies. So we know, for example, Tracy Windsor in Be Not Afraid described it to me in such a way as if you were in a movie theatre and somebody in a movie theatre uniform came in and started shouting, fire, fire, get out. You couldn't smell smoke, you couldn't see the fire, but this person has an official uniform on, they have the flashlight, and they're telling you to go out this door. Now you don't know where that door leads, you're not sure it's entirely safe or the right thing you want to do, but you do as you're told and you go out that door. And she said the same happens to parents during diagnosis, that they're given this such a bleak view, this child is going to live, it's the best thing. Some of the things parents will tell us that doctors have said to them is horrendous. You know, things like, think of your other children. This will destroy your marriage. You don't want to be looking after a child like this. We had one parent told to seriously think about what they wanted to do because they were going to have a grown man living in their house that would soil themselves. You know, really horrible, horrible things to say to a mother that makes them go into a decision. So... What we have as well is the media do this. The media push these terrible stories and they convince even pro-life people that it causes harm. But what they don't see, and I always ask people, you know, look on our website, look on our Facebook page, look on our Twitter page, and you will see the stories. And never once have we had a parent that has ever, ever said they regretted having their baby. But these stories don't get shared, you see. They're not the narrative that they want. So it's always tempting to be very, very cynical here, because on one hand, I know a lot of journalists and a lot of abortion activists 
do use these examples to push abortion for purely cynical reasons. For political reasons, they just say, well, you know what? These children are going to die anyways, and as such, it's, it's okay to use them as political fodder to push for legalization. At the same time, whenever somebody hears the story of, for example, the last months that you got to spend with your little girl, all the many stories that Every Life Counts tells, there's, there's, there's other beautiful videos. There's a, a beautiful video about a little boy named Elliot who lived a couple of months. Yeah. Just, a, just a gorgeous story. Another story called Choosing Thomas. There's a beautiful video if anybody wants to look that up. Everybody sort of collectively recognizes that these stories are beautiful because when you have a limited amount of time with somebody, you want to make the most of that time, not shorten it even further. It's such a strange argument actually that because these children won't live as long as the rest of us that means that we should somehow shorten their lives even further because they have a short lifespan to begin with it is actually very counterintuitive it makes no sense so am i being too cynical when i suspect that abortion activists are just using tragedy for explicitly political purposes or to create more tragedy or are there a lot of people who are simply ignorant and can't fathom how they might react in the same circumstances and can't fathom loving a child like that I think probably both. I mean, there is a huge amount of they using it. For example, during the referendum, I gave my story and there was no angst in it. You know, it was a beautiful story of love and time and memories. It got, I think, three minutes and 40 seconds on one of the main UK news channels. And then the lady that said she had to put her baby into a cooler box with ice cubes and hide her baby, baby's body that had been aborted in the boot of her car and travel back to Ireland that way. Got eight minutes. It just made a better story and people clung onto that story. The thing is, she didn't have to do that. That She did not have to do that. I mean, the thing is, if her baby was that sick anyway and going to pass away, then whatever country she does it in doesn't make that easy for her that baby's body was going to have to be transported from somewhere. And I know with Leiden, when we brought her home from the hospital, I said, she's not going in a coffin. She's not ready to go in a coffin yet. And we brought her home in a Moses basket in the back of the car. And the hospital gave us a little letter <laughs> to say she was there, you know, if we, if we were stopped for anything. So these stories, they're manipulated and they're twisted and they're used. I do think as well, the other side is right too. It's true too, that people feel like they can't fathom going through that. But you're going to go through it anyway. There's no winners here. If your baby is that sick that your baby is going to pass away, it's how you choose to deal with that time with the baby, as you said, is the issue here. The activists will always go for the terrible worst case scenarios. That's all we were hearing here in Ireland was rape cases, and sick babies. Nobody wanted to talk about the social abortions. But even when you put it that way, right, when you don't say fatal fetal abnormality or life-limiting condition even, but you say sick babies, that suddenly kind of exposes abortion in this instance for being, it's almost more cruel to attack somebody who's weaker. And I wrote an article a couple of months ago called Compassionate Eugenics, and it was just on all of these stories that have been hitting the mainstream papers in the U.S. over the last couple of months, where they literally take examples of babies who get a bad diagnosis in the womb and then tells in sometimes like very gruesome stories of women describing how the late-term abortions they had felt 
because we're talking about skull crushing and dismemberment. And, you know, the later on the procedure gets, the more horrifying the procedure gets. But they're trying to present this as compassion, almost like we had to go through this horrible thing in order for our baby to be delivered from pain. Now, you've talked about this publicly a lot. What is your response as somebody not only who's gone through this, but works in this field, works for Every Life Counts, when you see the proliferation of these stories growing, when you see, again, just like happened in Ireland in 2018, these stories being used across the U.S. Right now, like I mentioned before, in Michigan and Kentucky, as they have abortion referendums, which will be just passed at the time of this podcast airs. What is your response when you see stories like that? Besides, it must really, really piss you off. It really does. I think I get almost madder at the people for just swallowing it. But I was one of those kind of people that what I saw on the news was gospel. You know, why would the local media tell lies? What benefit would they? Why would government push abortions through? We're so happy to see what's happening in America that the government has actually said, hang on now a minute, maybe this is not the way to go. But that's exactly the thing. It's how can you say that to do a d e abortion on a little sick baby, the most vulnerable of them all, is a mercy. There's actually something profoundly wrong with you if you believe that to be true. Because you need to think, like Leiden, she was born the size of a 25-week-old baby, which is probably around the age most of these terminations would happen. And it would have taken a lot of work to pull her to pieces. And that's what would have happened to her. Had I travelled, had I taken the doctor's advice, had I been scared into that, she would have been dismembered. And my goodness, no one deserves that. No one, especially your own child. And I think just for parents that feel, you know, that they're going towards that, just take a breath, just pause, take a breath. What will be will be, and you will hurt anyway but hurt with no regrets rather than thinking about what happened to your baby. When they start flouting these stories, just like ABC, they don't realise the hurt and the harm behind it. One of the main things I said after having made and my grief was so deep and crushing. Had I made a decision to end her life, I don't know what I survived that grief. How could I live with saying her life? If I had made the decision on when her life ended, and she went peacefully at home, tasting her Marks and Spencer's cupcake, you know. You have, you mentioned earlier, more and more and more mothers and couples coming to you at Every Life Counts. A couple of questions, right? Like, first of all, what is that like? But B, is it a really joyful job or is it a very difficult job? Because you are dealing with sick babies. And over and over again, you were dealing with little babies who die and you went through that yourself. And for me, like the work of palliative care in general on both ends of life has always seemed to me to be particularly heroic, just simply because it seems to me to be incredibly difficult, right? I work on the pro-life movement. Our job is to dissuade people from having abortions and we often get to see happy endings and those endings are kind of like objectively happy, right? There's not a dead baby. There's a living baby, but your work is obviously far more emotionally complicated. So what's it like? So first of all, to see the increase in parents coming, in a way, that's good because we're there for them. We've gone through this. They have the support. They don't feel alone. We opened this brand new, beautiful office, a complete blessing this year. Because we got so busy, we were working from their room <laughs> in the house and we just needed more space. So that's how busy we got and we're blessed to have what we have. But as far as doing this work... I am honoured. I am honoured to know these babies. 
sometimes I get cuddles, you know, I get the pictures sent to me, the mums and the dads, even nannies and granddads, you know, they're so grateful. These people become our forever friends and they're so grateful for what we do for them. And we don't, we don't do a huge amount. We're just part of their story. We do everything we can for them, but we're just there and they know we're there and they're just so grateful. And in the office again, we have, I think it's 78 pictures now hanging on the wall of all our beautiful children. And I can name each and every one for you. <laughs> I can't remember my nieces and nephews' birthdays, but I can. <laughs> I remember all these babies. I'm just so honoured to be part of their sweet little beautiful lives. And one thing as well, Jonathan, that always strikes me, the impact that these babies have, they're not just forgotten about. So the babies that are aborted, the parents have to move on. They can't think about it. They can't celebrate their children. They can't have the birthday parties or the anniversary parties or talk about them with joy or show pictures. They just want to forget and move on. But parents that have gone on to have their babies, they celebrate their children. They always go on to do fundraisers for the organisations. That's how we get funds. It's the parents. One mum recently at the baby's funeral, she said no flowers and she put one of our collection buckets actually in at the baby's funeral. She was like, no, I, I want you to have something from it. And then afterwards done another fundraiser for us because she was so grateful for the support we give her. But she celebrates her baby and, and all these babies are celebrated and they always bring a huge impact to the world. I mean, even if you look at Leoden, for example, and the change she had in me, I worked in retail. I didn't care about anything or anyone. <laughs> I would get my hair and nails done on the weekends. I was shallow as a puddle. And now my life is all this and I just feel so blessed. I mean, the impact that little girl has had, as many other babies, if you look into normally any children's charity, any children's hospices or anything, they have normally started out from somebody that has lost a baby or a child. They have a huge impact. So if a mom comes to you and she's scared because she's been reading the press, she's maybe talk to medical professionals who sort of immediately give her the option of abortion. Palliative care is, is very difficult to find in some places. In some places, you see abortion regimes and on the other end of life, euthanasia regimes come into being. And one of the reasons for this is that society is disinterested in expending the money and creating the infrastructure necessary to take care of people at their most vulnerable and especially in their last days, weeks or months. And so you see killing people become a solution to a lack of palliative care. So when a mom comes to you and is scared, they get referred to you and, and she thinks that maybe she wants to have an abortion. What do you say to her? We always tell her, take a breath. We always say, look, just pause. You've plenty of time. Here in Ireland, the legislation they came up with was babies with life-limiting conditions can be aborted at any stage up to birth. It's the same in the UK, but for even much lesser reasons. In the UK, a little baby that has trisomy 21, like Down syndrome, can be aborted up until mum goes into labour, which is shocking, and it's constantly offered. So we just say, slow down. We normally would put them in touch with the mother of a baby that's had a similar diagnosis. We try and match the diagnosis so they're not so scared. We lose very few. And even this year alone, we did think we lost one baby to abortion and mum stopped contacting. And I was like, OK, you know, this this baby is gone and we've done what we could. And then a couple of weeks later, we get a picture. She actually had him and he wasn't that sick and he's doing quite well. 
and we get updates. So we thank God we lose very few. But we just help here. On that subject, does that happen often? You saw that New York Times article, right, where they talk about the number of diagnoses that end up being wrong. You often have doctors who are trying to, you know, cover their butts for malpractice or just trying to be on the safe side. Part of this is in response to what they call these wrongful birth lawsuits where parents have actually sued the doctors for not telling them because they say they would have aborted if they'd known. And, you know, for anybody who is familiar with the Irish situation, there's that horrifying story of that couple who was told that their baby was sick, had an abortion realized he was healthy. I happen to think it's it's horrifying either way, but this one seems to just be an example of how many babies who might not have been aborted are because of this. Do you encounter the situation where parents are told that their baby is sick and then the baby is born and it turns out they weren't as sick as the doctors originally said? So that case you mentioned was baby Christopher. The parents were able to find out from getting their own geneticist that the trisomy was actually in the placenta. They had said that they didn't want to have an abortion, that they weren't afraid of having a child with a disability. That wasn't an issue to them. But the doctor said, but there's no point. This baby is not going to live. Like they made it just an absolute hopeless case. And when we see parents like that, we're like, look, we're going to send you videos. We're going to send you links. Look at these children. This is just a much better way to go for you. You will have no regrets. And there's so much love in having your child. But what we did see after that, which was very surprising to me, is we had, because we help parents all over the world, and we had a family from the UK that reached out to us. And whereas she was never intent on having an abortion, it wasn't an option for her. She would not have one. She was constantly being pushed. So she came to us more for advocacy. So we were able to send her, I don't know if the people have heard of the amazing Dr. Marty McCaffrey, we were able to put her in touch with him and he offers support and we were able to send her all his papers so she could give these to the consultants. But they kept kind of giving her wishy-washy reports and saying, no, we think we see this wrong with the baby and we think we see that. So she was waiting for her daughter to be born to die. So little hope is born. A couple of hours pass and they're like, hang on a minute. Hope is breastfeeding. A few more hours pass and they're like, hang on now. Hope is doing everything as she should be. And it turns out she was perfectly healthy and the trisomy was in the placenta. Now, that's the only case I personally know of. I have read other cases of it. But what we're thinking is with the high abortion rates, we'll never know how often this happens. Had little baby Hope been aborted, we, her parents would have never known. They would have never known that she was a healthy baby and the doctors would never get in trouble for it. We know that the NIPT testing, it's wrong. There's cases where twins is exceptionally wrong. It's only screening. It's not a diagnostic. And just the whole things with testing, it's not been handled right. And I know here in Ireland, they're really looking to screen all these babies. And if our babies are failing tests before they're even born, it's not for a good society. Now, I know that you've got to go here pretty quick because you told me you had moms booked for all day to discuss. And so I guess I wanted to close the interview off by asking, where can our listeners find your work? You post so much sad but encouraging stuff. Where can people kind of follow your work and what sort of resources can you point them towards? So we're everywhere. We have a huge social media presence. And the reasoning behind it is even if you Google price me 18, anencephaly, those kind of conditions, 
most of the time our pitches come up as hits because we constantly do the hashtags and try to push that on social media and we try to do it without having to pay for it so <laughs> so we do a lot of work around that we're on everything so we're on facebook we have a wonderful wonderful informative website that i think everybody everybody in the world should know about our website it's www.everylifecounts.ie there is information on it there's medical fact sheets there's stories there is immediate links to contact us. There's everything you need there because you never know when this might come to your door or you might know somebody that just needs that support at that time. We're on Twitter, we're on Pinterest, we're on YouTube. <laughs> so just hit in Every Life Counts and you will find us. And you can email us. We love having chats with people. You can email us. We will video call you. If you're in Ireland, you're more than welcome to come and visit the office. And yeah, we just love making new friends. Vicky, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Great to chat to you again. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Vicky Wall of Every Life Counts. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you want to check out past shows or subscribe to future shows, please head on over to lifesightnews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You can get our show wherever you get your content. Again, thanks so much for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.